Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, a place where we ask big questions of small things as we gather around the table with makers, thinkers, and doers. So grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and join us. And now, here are your hosts, Caben Kramer and Chris Quant. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. to start though all right well hello everybody welcome back we are here again with another episode Kevin. i'm so excited to be back here with you in the studio chris it's always good to be here and the studio being my home office and your dehydrator room yeah (laughs) my my corner i think is where we're at (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, Go, so good. We got a lot of good stuff on tap today. But first of all, yeah. as we start traditionally, hey, Caben, what are you drinking? Oh, what am I drinking? Tonight, we've got some, uh, it's a Japanese whiskey. It's some Suntree Toki. Okay. Um, I think I'm saying, I'm, I am probably saying that wrong. We're just going to start there. Let's just assume I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> um, but it's it's a blended Japanese whiskey. So and and I'm holding it up on screen for you, and yes. so our YouTube viewers can see it. This is a very light colored whiskey. It's I mean it's lighter than apple juice, and so it's a you know the the flavor matches that profile. It's a very light mm. profile. Okay, um, and that, that's what I'm drinking. Looks good. Yeah. How about you, Chris? What are you drinking? Uh, well, speaking of apple juice, I actually am drinking apple juice. <laughs> but in, in in a way, it's a hard cider. Nice. It was given to me actually by a mutual friend. Uh, we both oh. know this person, and uh, happened to be at my house uh, the other day, and just out of the blue said, "Do you want some hard cider?" Mm. And I said, "Yes." <laughs> and uh, he went out to his car and produced a, a thing of hard cider. Like amazing. Parent- I I probably have some of that same gentleman's hard you cider probably in my do. fridge because the same thing happened to me. Yeah. And uh, so which I'm I'm, thankful for. What's that? I'm thankful for that. It's good stuff. He is a talented man. It's real good. We we don't have his permission to name drop him here, but um, he's he's a very talented individual. Very good. Uh, Not only in the hard cider making, but other areas uh, in the uh, fintech space or the tech space or whatever he's in now. Yeah. Very, very good guy. So, uh, yeah. yeah, So drinking some locally produced and made hard cider and it is delish. Very cool. Very cool. I love that. Now that we got that out of the way, hey, Kevin, we want to talk a little bit about time today. This has yeah. been something that's been on your mind, and uh, <laughs> we want to unpack that as we're talking about just the concept of time. What does that look like? Tell me tell me a little bit yeah. about what you've been thinking about that, just around what is time? Well, here's where I've, here's where I've been coming from. Um, I've been coming from this world where, you know, I've been pretty busy with growing a business. So I haven't been tending to some of the more menial tasks that I should be, which means I haven't had as much time with my noise canceling headphones on my tractor as I normally would. (laughs) And finally today I got back out on my tractor. And when I got in, uh, my wife, Jen looked at me and she said, did it feel good to get back out on your tractor? And I just sighed deeply and I said, yes, it felt so good. Um, but when I was out there, I found myself thinking about time. And I happened to be in the middle of listening to a fantastic book um, loosely on the subject mm. called Do Nothing. Um, and I'm going to have to look up the author. It's 
really, really well done. Uh, highly recommend it. Fantastic book. Um, but she does talk about the relationship between work and time a little bit. And of course, here I am um, with a lot of really exciting things on my plate, um, but a lot of distracting things, right? A lot of things that are pulling me in lots of different directions. And so I'm trying to become the master of multitasking and I'm trying to do these other things. And then I just get out on my tractor when it's just me and the trees and it's just quiet and there's a whole lot of dust, but there's no distractions and I can just, I feel my body breathe again in a different way. Mm -hmm. And then of course, listening to this book on top of it, I am just like, oh yes, these are the words that I need to hear. And so then coming into time, like, I just, I just want to talk about that because that's what's on my brain. So that's, that's the background. Cause that's why I was, I hijacked our plans. and was like, let's talk about time. I just wanted to ask you something and this is kind of related, but not, but there's one thing that I've noticed when getting older and I don't want to take us too much down a rabbit trail here, but I'm gonna, when you're getting older, does it just feel like you have less and less time? Is that just me? Or is that just a, a, a thing of getting older? Like, man, Where's the time going? And maybe it's having kids too. Like the kids are growing up and like, wait, you were just little and now you're not little anymore. What's happening to this time? I think about it, no pun intended, but all the time. Is it like that for you? Oh, it's so like that for me. And okay. I actually have a theory on it. I'm all ears. So my theory is that our brains organize things by events, by notable milestones. Yeah. And when we're young, the number of notable milestones compared to the calendar is really highly correlated, right? Like every month, sometimes every week, there's some huge milestone, right? You're making friends, you're losing friends, you're failing tests, you're passing tests, you're doing sports, you're doing all these things for the first really 18 to 22 years of your life. Mm -hmm. There's this high ratio between the meaningful events and the calendar. Then as you move out of that kind of youthful school oriented position in life and you move into work, it slows down. Mm -hmm. Now, if you stay in the job for two, three, four, ten 10 years, there's, there are small peaks and valleys in work, but you're still doing the same work. You haven't moved different schools. You haven't moved different houses. You haven't moved different spouses, right? Right. So you're all of those kind of milestone markers haven't there's not there's not been a new milestone marker for a decade and yet all of this calendar time has passed and so then our brains think wait where's the time gone because our brain is measuring things in these event-based milestones not in the calendar so as the calendar keeps going by but the milestones yeah. aren't we're like and then and then we have our kids to look at because yeah. then our kids start hitting all these milestones and we see them hitting all those milestones well, we don't, right? Because we're still just doing our adult thing. And then it feels like time warps even faster. Oh my gosh, that's so good. I've never even, but that's so true, right? Because I think, man, I've got to have something on the calendar that I need to look forward to, mm. right? Like it's, it's, it's counting down and it seems like, okay, whether it's a vacation or whether it's a birthday or whether it's something like that, where you're exactly right, it's this event-based thing in life. Like all of a sudden it gets there so quickly now to where as I was a kid, it was like, oh my God. Like just think about Christmas, <laughs> yeah. right? 
it's going to so forever. Like we, my sister and I used to make the paper chains, yeah. right? And you tear off one link every day and it just seemed like it would take forever to get to Christmas. And now I'm like, no, like I want to enjoy the season. Slow it down mm-hmm. because I know that exactly right. Like it's just going to be this just monot. Okay. January is going to come and it's just mm-hmm. going to be this monotonous train mm-hmm. for however long. Oh my gosh. That's so good. I love that. And and this, like, especially like how how stinking adulting is this? Like when we go on vacation, I'm like, oh, I want to savor the drive. I want to <laughs> savor getting there. Right. And don't you, as like a kid, you're like, no, I can't wait to get there. Like, forget the trip there. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's just enjoy the trip. Yeah. Let's just let's soak in this time because I <laughs> maybe because as a kid, I didn't have a job that I had to go back yeah. to. <laughs> Yeah, it's like no, just soak in every moment yeah. of it. This is really great. Yeah, that's really good. Philosopher and farmer, Cabe and Kramer, ladies and gentlemen. I I don't think that our brains, our bodies, our souls—I don't think anything about our human construct cares about Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I don't think it cares no. at all about if it's eight p.m. or six p.m. I think it cares deeply about whether the sun is up or the sun is down. I think our body cares yeah. deeply about what phase the moon is in. I think our body cares deeply about the season of where the tilt of the earth is and where our bodies are on the earth. I think our, our I think we're clued into all of those things, but I don't think that our bodies care about the calendar. And isn't that interesting, though, because isn't that a marker of when you're on, let's just say when you're on vacation or your body feels more at rest as you wake up and go, what day is today? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is today like, oh, that doesn't really matter. Like, and I really don't care. And do I care what time? Yeah, it looks like it's probably about lunchtime. I kind of feel hungry. Might as well take care of that now. <laughs> right. Isn't it amazing now that you say that? Because we just got back from vacation a couple weeks ago. That that's one of the first things you forget. As if one's the first yes. thing that your body wants to shed, that your brain wants to just offload. 100%. Like, oh, as soon as we get permission to forget the day of the week, it's gone. Yeah. And I actually prefer it that way. Like, I sure. know, like, I'm in the, when I'm not thinking about, okay, how many days do we have left? How many hours do I have left before I have to pack up the car again? We have to get back, <laughs> I have to go, and I have to start shifting back into work mode, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, not saying, I'm not trying to diminish the thing of work. Like, we can talk about that and what that is and what that means to the human body. But I love the point of just like, hey, here's what I have to get done today. It's a day. Great. <laughs> what What is interesting to me, because I'm feeling this now that we're, you know, now we have a business where we're selling products to people all mm-hmm. over the country, which is wonderful. I love it. There's absolutely zero complaint. But I'm reminded of this thing that, you know, all of us are taught and that I carried with me in other businesses, but had kind of let go of on the farm and is now kind of coming back to it. It's this idea that, like, we are all told that time equals money. Right. Which, first of all, if we zoom back, that that was a Benjamin Franklin thing, right? Mm-hmm. So pre-1780s, that concept did not exist. Time and money were completely disassociated. I mean, money and markets were also disassociated. Anyway, we could get into all of that. But sure. like, there was no relationship between time and money that was quantified or spoken about until pretty recent history. But now it's like the de facto. I mean, it is the defining law of the universe that yeah. time is money. Yeah. Which, and this is a point that she makes in the book, which is just floored me when I heard it because it was so obvious. That ironically then, the more money we make, the less we enjoy the time we have off of work. 
And isn't that one of the huge goals in life is like, well, if you do this, then you'll get yourself time freedom. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I'm always and striving towards time freedom, but I've got to make so much money before sure. I can do that. Sure. And, and let's just drag it out to its, its you know drama. If I have my 100-foot yacht in the Mediterranean, then I'll just be – my life will be full of leisure and, and no work. But that is not what the research says. By the way, quick side note. I heard Jeff Bezos or I read it that Jeff Bezos is building a $500 million yacht. Disgusting. I just want to see what's on a 500. <laughs> I, like my brain can't even fathom what – like is it like oh, also man. a submarine that, that you can you <laughs> dive below the surface and, and also it flies? What oh, the heck goes man. on a $500 million? It's all carbon fiber? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. But I yeah. want to see that. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Oh, Go ahead. Man. No, it's – it's it is it is strange though because man there there's so much good stuff from this book but she talks about okay here here's her opening premise I'm I'm selling this book because this book is I think everyone should listen to it and or read it What's the it name of the book again? It's called Do Nothing. Okay. Do Nothing. Um her opening premise is asking the question is technology to blame for our disassociation and our busyness and our burnout. Hmm. Or is it not to blame? And it doesn't ruin anything in the book because very early on, she builds this very strong argument for like, no, actually, technology is not to blame for our business. We carry the urge for busyness within us. Mm -hmm. It's a social structure that even if we took all of technology out of the equation, we would find ways to stay busy. We'd find ways to fill our time, to have zero margin, to burn ourselves out right. because we've come to associate our human value with our busyness. Mm. And she has this amazing kind of one liner that I, I, man, I want on a poster. <laughs> and she talks about how like, you know, she, she gives these analogies of, of, people, especially during the Industrial Revolution, who would literally kill themselves, working themselves to death to prove that they could compete with the machines that were coming online. No kidding. People were literally working themselves to death. And so then she has this line. She says, we as humans, we do not persist. We pulse. And this idea that the human physiology is designed for these pulses of work and then pulses of rest, pulses of work, pulses of rest. Whereas machines, you just turn them on and they go. Right. They don't need a rest, right? right. Which if we we, have, if we get into our sacred text, right, it's all in there. Like, you know, rest is an important piece of that, especially in our shared tradition. Um, but like it's maybe it's by design right maybe mm -hmm. it's on purpose mm -hmm. that rest is an important thing because maybe there was an understanding in the spiritual tradition that humans will attempt to work themselves to death so we need to remind them <laughs> that actually they're physiologically designed to need pulses of work and pulses of rest and i am just like holy smokes i need to hear that because i have not been resting very well the last six weeks chris because there's been a lot going on mm -hmm. um Anyway, that's just kind of jumping all around. But this idea that like it blew me away because because th this is the whole sell point of the American dream, right? If you make enough money, then you'll be able to relax and enjoy your life. Well, what the research is showing is actually if you make a lot of money, you don't want to take any time off because anytime you take off, you think you're losing money. Right. You've got right? to guard Cause, it. Yeah, because if you're making $15 an hour and you're like, well, I'm just going to work 38 hours this week instead of 40 
our heads are trained to say, well, okay, I'm only losing $30 doing that. Yep. Right. But if you make $1,500 an hour and you're like, oh, by the way, I'm going to take a day off to go to my kid's baseball game. Now you're like, oh my gosh, I'm losing $13,000 just to go watch my son's baseball game. Not worth it. I'm going to stay at the office late and I'm going to work extra hard. Mm. Right? It's addictive. I mean, it can be addictive. It can be like a drug, right? Like I've got to hit these numbers. I've got to hit these metrics. And if I don't, and and we can also talk about self-worth being tied into that, right? Oh, so much. Value. What's my value? literal value yeah. yeah we make it a monetary value at that point yeah but but you can see but i can see the motivation so i don't know if you've seen the movie margin call one of my favorites uh mm. based around 2008 and all the craziness that went there and, and the financial industry uh, and basically what led up to that meltdown right of what mm. happened and one of the things that that movie attempts to do is it breaks down the massive amounts of money that traded hands, but also these employees who worked in these, even if you were mid-level, the amount of money that was to be made or that you could make. Mm. For for somebody who, if you're not really in that, you're like, good Lord, what? And mm. um, uh, Paul Bettany, uh, Vision, for those of you who like uh, Marvel comics, uh, talks about how he makes $2 million a year or something like that, and how really it doesn't go as far as you think, right? Because you mm-hmm. have just, you buy the $100,000 sports car, then you've got the, you know, big old mortgage, you know, hookers and entertainment and all that, like really, and pretty soon two, $2 million a year is just gone. And you're like, how mm-hmm. is that even possible? Mm-hmm. But how, but, but then you're just, but you're just working. You're just yep. working yep. all the time. And your your soul is basically owned, in my opinion. So, like, how much is enough money? Like, when I get a $500 million yacht, is that going to be enough? And trust me, like, hey, look, I wouldn't complain arguing $2 million a year, but I would also have to think, also, at what cost? Because is that going to cost me right. missing my kids growing up? Yeah, yeah. Perhaps. Well, but, but think about it this way, Chris. Um, think, think back to when we were in college and we would say, oh, if only I made and, – and the number we said in college is probably the number we're making now. Yeah, right? it's true. It's true. And you're like, oh, then then it would be enough. Then I would be fine. And yet here we are making that and we're still feeling stretched. Actually, and now as I think about it, here's my hypocrisy because about – I could go back to about 10, 9 or 10 years ago when I was making actually much less than what I'm making now but still – probably working harder than i mm. am right now making less i shouldn't mm. say working harder than but like the hours missing a lot of some of my kids early stuff i'm like man i wish you know i wish i would i wish i might go back and and, and mm-hmm. do that right so i guess it doesn't necessarily just mean with a dollar amount but also what your value and your right. worth is right okay two other things on that because i'm i'm loving the thread we're on and i just want to i want to unspool it a little bit farther First of all, there is research that says once you cross a certain dollar threshold, and this isn't in the book, this is from other stuff that I've read over the years. Once you cross a certain dollar threshold, the correlation between increased income and increased happiness ceases to exist. Yep. And then once you cross a certain higher threshold, it actually begins to create a negative correlation, which gets to kind of what we're talking about, about like when you make too much money, you enjoy your time less. Like there gets to be some point of wealth where actually earning more money produces less happiness in your life 
And depending on, you know, there's some factors. But essentially, as long as you can keep a roof over your head and food on your table, then an increase in money does not necessarily correlate to an increase in happiness, Mm. which is interesting. I just think about you and you do think about that. And again, are we like railing against making a lot of money in our new like, no, no, not at all. At least I'm not. I mean, maybe maybe you are. But I'm like, no, I mean, if 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 that's where you're at, like, great. Awesome. Good for you. I hope you're being a great steward of it and, and also helping other people with it and, you know, bringing others up as well. Uh, but how many times have we heard people who have just made gobs of money and thought, oh, I thought that would bring me happiness. And it turns mm-hmm. out I'm just kind of alone sometimes mm-hmm. with just a bunch of money and mm-hmm. what fun is that right so. well and and here's what's interesting here's a second point there were ha- there were four reports produced between the year 1900 and 1970 mm-hmm. that all said in the future we won't be working or we'll be working very few hours and the last report came out sometime in the 70s and it was actually produced by a government agency so it was like kind of the most official report Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was called the four hour work week. Yep. And it said by the late eighties, early nineties, maybe even the year 2000, I forget exactly the date they tagged that the average American would only be working four hours a week. What's so, so a few things happened. That's First a, of all, that's adorable. Yes, but it's, it was also, it was, it was possible. Mm hmm collectively and we can look at all the various factors that kind of made it this way because i i do think there were some nefarious or self-interested actors who made sure it didn't go a different way Mm. (laughs) but but i also think just culturally as as a choice um you know if if you look at the rise in american consumerism it conspicuously follows the the drop off of these reports Um, Mm. an increase in consumerism led to people no longer believing that a short work week was possible. You but mean like Chris, this guy right here who just laughed in your face when you mentioned it? Yeah. <laughs> everyone does. And and it's right because it's it's the water we swim in. Chris, the, the house I bought in Auburn, which is the city you still live in, mm-hmm. when we bought our house there, it was built in 1953. I got a hold of an original pamphlet because the Interstate 80 was built at, it, it was being built at the same time that the subdevelopment was being built mm-hmm. in the house I bought. So it was one of the first communities that people could still access the the urban hub of Sacramento, but have this kind of suburban life. It was one of those original things. And this, this pamphlet advertised a house. It was 950 square feet. And it said, perfect for a family of six. What? In 1953 in California. Six? So from 1953 until now, the average house size has... I think it's quadrupled and the yeah. average number of people in a house has been cut in half. 100%. So, so that's just one indicator and you can look at any, anything, whether it's your wardrobe or your driveway or your house or anything else. And we collectively chose to exchange our time for our money. Mm-hmm. We said, and in fact, I was having, you know, I I went to high school in Kenya and and I really enjoyed my time over there. And I was talking to someone else about my time in Kenya and, and he's a musician and he made a comment. He said, well, if I can't buy a guitar, then I'm not going to be happy. And I said, well, there's not really guitar stores that are, you know, everywhere all over Kenya. Um, so that might not be possible. He said, well, then I don't want to live there. And I said, well, what, what a good American who doesn't know how to be happy unless you're able to consume something. Huh? 
right? Interesting. Um, because there's plenty of talented musicians in Kenya who don't feel like they have to buy a new guitar to be happy. Um, <laughs> but here we are as Americans. And, and this is the collective consciousness that we have embodied as a people, that we had the gateway. The science and the research was indicating that the amount of worker productivity and the GDP growth in America, had we stayed comfortable with the 950 square foot home being adequate for a family of six, how do we maintain that social construct? Mm-hmm. How do we maintain those beliefs about what is appropriate as far as human consumption and personal property and all of those material things? We could be living in a world where a four-hour work week is normal. Interesting. Wow. Because that just blows my mind to think of that. There's just no way. No. Like, you think 1,400 square feet can barely exist in with four people. Are you kidding yeah. me right now? Yeah. What? But you're right, because we've increased on top of on top of on top of on top of like this mm-hmm. is what the standard of living is now. Mm-hmm. I still can't I imagine mean, six people in 900 square feet, to be honest with you. But I see yeah, your but, point. But but my my dad was born in the 50s and he was born in uh, f- there are seven kids in the family. And and my grandma still lives in that house. And the whole house might be 1,800 square feet. Yeah. Right? Family of, of nine. <sighs> and, you know, seven kids, two parents. And my grandma still lives in that house. <laughs> like, Man. So, so this isn't that long ago. No, it's really not. You know, that, that house in Auburn was sold to my grandparents' generation, right? Yeah. So Brand they, new. They're still alive. Yeah. Brand new. Yeah. Wow. With this belief that that was adequate for a family. And somehow between them and then our parents' generation and now our generation, we've come to believe that that would be woefully inadequate. To the fact where I've, I've heard there were two, two people that I know and a dog living in 3,000 square feet blew my mind. Blew yeah. my mind. I will say, you know, for my the, there have been four of us in my family that we lived in 540 square feet for mm. a long time. Somehow we existed, Cabin. With one bathroom. Now, granted, we had some outdoor space where the kids could go outside, and they were a little bit little, little, littler then. But so I can see it. It's rough. <laughs> it's rough. But look, if you have to do it, you can do it. And that's our show. If this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was to us, leave a rating and review so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. Thank you for listening. We're so glad you're here, and we'd love for you to join the conversation too. But hey, you've heard enough of our voices. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at ofdustanddivinity.com. Partner with us on Patreon and get access to exclusive content, merch, and hidden perks. Go to patreon.com slash ofdustanddivinity. Join our Facebook group of Dust and Divinity podcast community and engage with us on Instagram at of dust underscore and divinity. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them And the point is to live everything.
Live the questions now. 